Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi everyone, Amy here. Please enjoy this special episode of Gen X This Is Why. Jenny and I were so honored to sit down with the actress Karen Grassley, who played our feminist hero, Ma Ingalls, on Little House on the Prairie. Karen has written and is releasing her first memoir, Bright Lights, Prairie Dust. Please note there is some discussion of mental health issues and suicide. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to Gen X This Is Why, the podcast where we re-examine the sometimes bizarre and often scarring media from our shared childhood. My name is Amy, and I'm a proud Gen Xer born in 1977. And I'm her sister Jenny, born in 1974. Guys, we have a treat for you today. <laughs> Sitting with us, so graciously giving us some of her time, is none other than Carolyn Ingalls, Karen Grassley. Karen! Hi! (laughs) We are so happy to have you here. I'm just going to read for our listeners a little bit of your um, biography from the back of your memoir here. So, Karen Grassley, known around the world for her iconic role as Ma on Little House on the Prairie, grew up in Ventura, California. Raised by hardworking, loving people, undercut by the alcoholism of her father, Karen graduated from UC Berkeley and attended the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art on a Fulbright. She went on to a career in New York, as well as in theaters all over the U.S. She co-wrote and starred in the TV film Battered and is known for her advocacy on behalf of equality for women. In the last 15 years, Karen has appeared in many plays locally and out of state, as well as three indie films. She now resides in San Francisco Bay Area and takes pleasure in her relationship with her son, Zach Radford, and in gardening. So, Karen, thank you so much for being here. I I have to tell you that I spent all week reading your book. Yeah. And I loved it. So, Karen's memoir coming out is Bright Lights, Prairie Dust, and it comes out when? The 14th of November. No, the the 16th of November. The 16th of November. I get it mixed up because I have a reading on the 14th. Okay. So we have to be ready for that. But it's really the 16th. I'm so excited. So the 16th of November. And can people pre-order it now? Yes, yes. They can go to my website, karengrassley.net, and they can see how to pre-order it. Okay. 
Um, I, I think my first question, Karen, is how many people call you Karen Grassle on a daily basis? Well, people don't call me anything really on a daily basis, you know. <laughs> I was watching some of your old footage from Hollywood Squares and the contestants constantly call you Karen Grassle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting too that uh, people could get a hold of uh, Joan Baez, but they couldn't get a hold of Grassley, you know? Yes. I just, yes. I, I don't get it. But, um, you know, the very first time that the show went on the air, it was the pilot. And the NBC announcer came on at the break and said, and we'll be right back with Little House on the Prairie with Michael Landon and Karen Grassle. And I was sitting there with my parents and my best friends, and we all just groaned, you know. <laughs> but then they corrected it. They got it right after okay. that. Somebody yeah, must have grabbed so, them. I guess. So it's it's been an ongoing theme. I, I was really fascinated by the book and just your very rich history and all of your training and all of your accolades that you've accomplished through the theater were really impressive. Um, you talk about seeing Lear, King Lear, as a young woman and fall, kind of falling in love with theater and with Shakespeare. And as a writer and an English major, I have to ask you, is Lear your favorite Shakespeare play? Absolutely. Really? Amy went yeah. right for the Shakespeare. Amy's a I did go right for the she Shakespeare. Went right for the Shakespeare. Well, I, I do that. love Shakespeare. And when I was starting out, I thought that Shakespeare would be the central chapter of my work, you know. And I hoped that I would do a play every year and eventually do, you know, every play that had a part for a female. Um, it just didn't work out that way. But uh, every opportunity that I've had, it's just been the best to work on Shakespeare. Um, here's a fun fact, Karen. I was the founding member of the Shakespeare Club in my high school. There were three members, me, my best friend, and my teacher. <laughs> <laughs> they really went for it, huh? Yeah, yeah. We were all in. <laughs> Yeah, I was um, an English major, too, until I fell in love with the theater, and then I became yeah. a double major. Oh, nice. Okay, and that was UC Berkeley you went to, right? Yeah. And mm -hmm. so you were you were at UC Berkeley, kind of when the all of the counterculture of the 60s oh, was yeah. taking the time roots. to be there. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was big times. It, a lot of students were coming back from the summer of having been in the civil rights movement in the South. Um, the pill had been released and there was a Planned Parenthood in Oakland where we could go and get it, which was wow. Wow. a revolutionary change. I mean, to finally not have to worry that you might get pregnant if you had sex. I mean, that was just enormous, enormous, because, you know, we'd been living with that our whole well since since we wanted to have sex <laughs> absolutely 
Um, my question from your book around that time, and you seem to skim over this and I need more details, is you mm -hmm. saw a young President Kennedy on the campaign yeah. trail. How hot was he? What was that like? He was totally hot. He was, <laughs> he was a hero, you know, he, he had vibration. I mean, he was one of those people. And uh, first, uh, we saw him in the debates on television on black right. and white. Right. And he was debating Nixon. And Nixon, oh, poor guy. I mean, he just started to sweat bullets and it was <laughs> dripping down his face. And he wasn't a handsome man to start with. He wasn't ugly, <laughs> no. but he wasn't handsome. And there was Kennedy, you know, Harvard language, po polished, mm -hmm. gorgeous. You know, he was like a matinee idol. And so we just fell in love with him. And that's why we got on the buses to go to this big rally in the city. And yeah. of course, we only saw him like you would see from the bleachers to a player far, far away. But we were totally wrapped. I love him. <laughs> my whole family, though, really loves him. Like we, we, my whole family, we are Kennedy Democrats, like my, on my mother's side. So I was, I'm really fascinated whenever anyone has seen him in person, because unfortunately, you know, his public career was so short lived. So it's really kind of mm -hmm. cool. I think um, that, okay. that the putting um, the debates on television was what decided that election. Yeah, that was the first one, right? The first televised yeah. debate. Yeah. yeah. And for years after that, the League of Women Voters ran those debates and they were fair debates and there, there was no BS. But then the parties began to interfere and take control mm -hmm. and manipulate the media. And uh, now uh, the, the public can hardly find out anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do believe too, I don't know if I'm a hundred percent right on this, but I think I remember reading that Nixon was the one who wanted it televised. Like he was like, oh yeah, let's televise it. And his advisors were like, no, 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 no. And he's, you know, oh yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. So the fact that it spectacularly backfired is, is pretty amazing. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the, your childhood that you write about. So you write that you based the character of Carolyn on the, the actual person, but that there were also bits of your mother in That's there. Right. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what parts of your mother you saw in that character you brought to that character. Yeah. Well that, you know, that that time when we started the series, there was very little information about Carolyn Ingalls. Uh, Laura doesn't write much about her in the books. And there were few photographs since then. There's been a lot of scholarship, but at the time there was very little information. So I drew on my own mother because she was at hand, you know, and she yeah. had been telling me stories about her life since I was a little kid. And so what she had in common with Carolyn was she had gone to school on a horseback. 
She had known Native Americans. She had been a one-room school teacher. She'd gotten her own uh, education in three years, working her way through. So she was a very hardworking, very grounded woman and, mm -hmm. and bright, very, very bright. And her whole thing with my dad was, you girls get an education, that's what we want to see. And there was never any question about whether or not their girls were going to college. And they didn't know how they were going to find a way to pay for it, but they were going to find a way. You know, it was a, a yeah. powerful commitment to education, which Carolyn, of course, had for her girls. And one of the reasons that she wanted Charles to settle down was so they could go to school. Right, right. Right? Yeah. Our, our mom, Jenny, don't you think kind of felt the same way about us? Like she was, my, my mother was a young mother. She had Jenny when she was 17. And so she didn't get to go to college oh. and my dad didn't either. So she was really adamant that yeah. we would get an education. That was, education was number one for us right from the beginning. Like that was taught to us. That was expected. I mean, I always wanted to go to school. I loved school. So I was very excited Nerd. about that. Amy was a little <laughs> bit different. Uh -huh. So is it a little bit like Mary and Laura? Yeah. Mary <laughs> and yeah. Laura was, was just better all around. She was the empath. Yes, yes. Um, what I liked about school was that I got to like shoot the breeze with my <laughs> friends and hang out with my friends. And then once I got to college and I was like, I could take these English classes where I read a novel and we just sit around and talk about it. I'm in. So that was, that was what drew me to English a hundred percent. So you talk about your dad kind of resembling the restlessness of Charles Ingalls. Like you, you feel like there was a point of recognition there. Do you think that that, that impacted you as a child or how did that impact you as a child? I, one of the, the most haunting points of the book for me is when you talk about the suicide notes mm -hmm. that he had written that your mother had and they weren't dated. So she didn't know if they were current or old, like that just, it really stuck with me. And I'm interested to know how that, stuck with you through your experience? Uh, well, of course, Charles was not an alcoholic. Right. My dad was. My dad was also a depressive. Not that he was depressed all the time because he had a great sense of humor. But, you know, a lot of the best, funniest comics suffer from depression. And yeah. humor is their way through it. And uh, so my dad was um, uh, steady and hardworking, but then his personality could change in a flash. So that's very confusing for a child. And then uh, I did not know that my father was suicidal until I was in college. My mother finally had a talk with me and told me about finding these notes, which I mean, you can just imagine the chill mm -hmm. uh, that would send through you of not sure. knowing. Is he thinking of it today? Was this last month? You know, I mean, 
so when he was dark, he was very dark. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't that often. But when it was like that, it was very, very bleak. And I also suffer from depression and alcoholism. So I think I got that genetically from him. And the yeah. reason I called it restlessness in Charles is because, you know, he he couldn't quite get satisfied. He couldn't quite find his real work, you know, and he kept moving the family and mm-hmm. they went through some very bad times in the books that we got over in an hour on the series, you know. Right. Like the long winter lasted an hour on the series. <laughs> right. Um, right. Jenny and I, we talk a lot about, I think, Jenny, mental health on our podcast because, Jenny, you've talked about your battle yeah. with depression. Yeah, I mean, I also and- suffer from clinical depression, and it's something that, like, I try to really be open about and really talk about to destigmatize because I think the way that mental health is stigmatized right now is so detrimental to everyone because there's so many people that that suffer from depression from anxiety i mean anxiety is everywhere and i think the more we anxiety now is just off the charts yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. and i'm with you i have depression and anxiety although i didn't really understand how much anxiety i had until maybe the last 10 years because all the time i just thought it was my personality yeah well, a lot of times they're like, oh, you're a type A personality or you're this or you're that. Mm-hmm. But it's like, that's just a different way of saying that like you have, and, and we think of them as disorders, but it, it's, you know, like it's a chemical imbalance. Like it's something physical that like, we just have to straighten out. It's not like there shouldn't be the stigma around it. We should be able to talk about it. And and I think everyone should have a therapist all the time. Like that's just, I think <laughs> yes. that, that should be required. <laughs> it's so helpful. Yeah, when people had a priest, they had yeah. someone to confide in or a minister. And to me, therapists have kind of stepped in to be that counselor, that person that you can take everything to and know that it will be confidential, you know. And I think having someone like that in your life is such oh such a great resource. Yeah. Cause it's not like you have friends and like, I have some friends who think friends are enough, but like your friends are different. That's a different role in your life. And like, it's good to have friends to lean on, but that's a really different point of view than a therapist. It's a really different experience. It really is. It really is. And yet, you know, some people don't need it. I mean, it's fine if, if they are, well adjusted and <laughs> what's that like <laughs> yeah uh, and they you know they have a happy life sure you know some people are happy <laughs> what? And- <laughs> wait what <laughs> well, I, who are they <laughs> it's hard for some of the rest of us to really understand it you know mm-hmm. well yeah. i used to be of the opinion that if somebody was happy they were maybe not too bright <laughs> <laughs> I may have thought that once in a while, but that—that's yeah, not the case. Not that they're not—not not that people... they're not bright, but like they're maybe they're just less complex in some way. Like maybe they have value in simpler things, which is 
not necessarily a bad thing. No, it's not. It's not at all. And then there are people who have done work, you know, to become uh, human beings that we can all emulate. Well, and I think, so I, I was late to the therapy game. I got a therapist about three years ago. I started working. I worked on a book with a hundred survivors of school shootings. So I'm very active in the gun violence community. And I knew, you know, preemptively, I got a therapist to help me deal with the subject matter that I'd be working with. And I, I can't let her go and will probably never let her go. But I think that I was able to muddle through by writing. I think I found a lot of my therapy through writing because I write memoir. So I was really, you you know, writing a lot about like I went through a divorce and I was writing a lot about that. And I really think that that helped me um, about 80 percent. Therapy Mm -hmm. brings me to the 100. You know what I mean? But I, I was able to muddle through. And I think sometimes people can use their arts or, you know, something like that to, to get through something. Writing is a great tool for processing stuff. And um, yeah. I think that's one of the reasons that I was able to hang in with this book was because yeah. it was so rewarding, you know, just to go through the healing process of these memories. Mm-hmm. And it's really, I I really just want to commend you because I think that you were really able to paint your father in a, in a, in a complex way. That's not one dimensional of this, you know, out of control alcoholic. Like we really did see the love that he had for you and that you had for him. And so that's really tough to do. And I think you did a really good job of that. He really comes across as a nice character. Thank you very much. He was a very complex guy. You know, mm-hmm. he he worked real hard. He helped my mother with the dishes every night. Right. He had worked in the garden on the weekend, you know, and um, uh, he he put his family first. Yeah. But he was an alcoholic. <laughs> which which was not uncommon which in is that an generation. Illness. Yeah. yeah. It's an illness. Yeah. You don't yeah. get... You don't get to choose. No, you don't. Um, so I want to move to talking a little bit about Little House. And, and this is something that I was really, I was not surprised to learn about you, was how involved you were in equal rights for women and how mm-hmm. you were taking a stand for things like equal pay way before that Which was we're still, even a thing. we're still fighting. We're, we're still, still fighting. fighting. Yeah. Yeah. Nope. Still fighting. Yeah. But um, you, you, you know, you write in the book a lot about that season two contract negotiation. Mm. I mean, what was that like for you? And thank you for not backing down. You did not back down. And I'm sure that was very difficult for you. That was hard. That was hard. You know, any group that you're a part of, if somebody is rocking the boat, and other people, especially the boss, are saying negative things. Then everyone pulls away from that person. So yeah. it got quite chilly for me, uh, except for my fellow actors and um, 
the hairdresser and the makeup man. I know. I love how you write about them. Professionals. <laughs> yes. They always, I mean, they just knew how to be there for you. It was just an amazing thing that these people who were deeply, deeply trained in Hollywood had. Um, yeah, very, very special people. And uh, so, yeah, it was very tough while while Mike was mad. Yeah. Um, and uh, eventually I got my contract and we went on. But in a sense, um, the intimacy that we had experienced in that first year uh, where we really were colleagues and we were rewriting together and we were there in those late afternoons yeah. after the kids went home. Those were such really collaborative times. Um, we never quite got that back again. And I feel like this is something that women are still dealing with. You know, we're we're part of the club as yep. long as we're willing to go along. But right. the minute that that we want something equal or fair or something that that costs somebody something, right? That's when we're no longer playing along, right? Right, right. And and so people are running into this in their jobs all the time, whether yep. no matter no matter what kind of job, yeah, or in their marriages. Um, I have here, you You talk about your work in the episode School Mom. Uh-huh. And you talked about at the end of the episode, Carolyn has to give up teaching and, and go back to, you know, the, the married woman's place in the home. And you say, you write, quote, I worried we might be training a new batch of girls to deny their gifts to be good. And that was really interesting to me that, because this is something Jenny and I talk a lot about, like a lot of our, you know, the kind of ongoing shtick between us is that Jenny's less traditional. I've been completely brainwashed. And part of my brainwashing was that reinforcement of the message that Carolyn stayed at home and took care of the kids. And, you know, Pa came down and he, whenever he was in Mankato, everybody died. And, you know, he would come back and save the day. And, and I just kind of, I, it's so funny because I still struggle with that. But to see you writing that, I'm like, so she saw it too. So you saw it too. It's interesting. I was very, very concerned about this idealistic role model uh, as a training school for young girls. (laughs) I was. Uh, because I, I mean, we knew that it, this wasn't real prairie life, right? It was right. let's pretend we're pioneers, and it was through the gloss like of a child's story. So everything, you know, so what you had to go and get your water from the creek, no big deal. Right. <laughs> but if you really had to do that, yeah. Oh, Jenny and I have already said we would be dead. What, Jen? One we would be dead. Into prairie life, we would <laughs> yeah. be dead. Episode three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Episode so three, I would have been dead. Stronger, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, think, I think also like the 
the whole idea of like their traditional, the problem was having a traditional life and getting married and having kids is a totally reasonable thing to do. And it makes a lot of people happy. Yeah. I never wanted that. And I didn't know it because there was no alternative real. There wasn't a lot of alternatives to, to see like, Hey, maybe, maybe, you know, you might want something different. It wasn't until I got, you know, into adulthood that I started realizing like, I, you know, I did all the things I didn't have children. I never wanted children, but I got married and like, then realized like this, traditional life isn't for me and I moved to New York and the rest is history but I didn't have any like I didn't have any real role models real role models of like a, there wasn't like this general acceptance of there's other tracks for women there was specifically for women I I'm actually very surprised to hear you say that because you were born in 74 and we were already marching you know we were already <laughs> having this discussion yeah. on on Dinah in the afternoon, you know, about women's roles. And we were already asking for equal pay. And so I'm, I'm very surprised. But I think Uh, part of that is where we grew up. So we are in a very, you know, kind of traditional behind the times area. Like we're in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And I swear we're about 20 years behind any profession yeah, here. I understand there are, there are yeah. a lot of places in the Midwest and the South yep. where things are 10, 20 years yeah. behind yeah. culturally. Well, I think and, by the time I was old enough to understand, like, yes, like by the time I was in college and like high school, like I understood that we're fighting for this. Like, I, you know, I liked all these different like role models and stuff. But like when I was young, when I was growing up, like mm-hmm. I didn't see a lot of it like in media, I guess, or like widespread. Yeah. Also, like I'm no, a member of the LGBTQ plus community and there was almost nothing about that. Like there, you oh, know what I mean? No, like there was that very, was... Yeah, like, like how that great would it have been if Miss Foster was like, I'm I'm just a lesbian and I'm gonna live in town and have a nice life and have a that would have been amazing. Would have been amazing. Well, you know, uh, I have to give my credit that when it came to Native Americans, uh blacks, uh women no, but he really did try to um Bring forward the the less recognized uh, people in the society, Um, yeah. But as far as uh, the role model was concerned, you know, in the writing, the the original writers uh, were idealizing this more passive, um, agree with everything. Ma, and a lot of them were writers from Bonanza, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. a, a Western with men. So I had to continually press for a deeper understanding of the character and try to put in texture that wasn't in the writing. Right. And um, early on, I remember one early, early scene where, you know, we're getting the breakfast and getting Carrie from climbing up the stairs and fixing Laura's braids and handing them their lunch and out the door. And then I went, oh, Mike, no, no, no. 
You just well, look after well. them and you smile because they're so lovely. Uh, oh, boy. <laughs> so that was the tension that I wanted to bring. Hey, this is hard work being yeah. a mom. You yep. know, this is. And so I just had to find these ways, find these ways. And I think in the end, it did pay off. Yeah. It's funny too, like memory plays such an important role here because I've talked to Jenny a lot about this. Like I had this image, I have not watched Little House since I was a little girl before this year. So there was, you know, maybe 20, 30 years, 30, who 30. am I kidding? 30 years <laughs> in between those viewings. And I had this idea that Ma was like this person who just needed to be rescued all the time. And when I went back to it, I was like, that is not her at all. (laughs) Like she is strong. She's like our feminist hero. Like we just, we fell in love with that character. And it was so (laughs) weird how I had misremembered it. And then, you know, you write in the book about the award. Let's talk about the award for a second. This is the the barn fire that we all remember. That was actually written. (laughs) Literally the barn burner. That was the barn burner. So that that episode was written for Mike, and then they changed it and wrote it for you. Mike Mike got very very sick, and and he was in the hospital, and it was it was really quite scary. Um, they had packed him in ice. His fever was through the roof, Ooh. and uh, they called me and said, um, "We're rewriting the show for you, and we'll send the script over." And uh, we went to work on Monday, uh, not knowing if uh, Mike was going to make it. Wow. And uh, yeah, he, he was seriously ill. And, um, and so we went to work. Yeah. And for me, you know, I mean, coming from the theater, coming from having been a standby on Broadway, um, knowing what it is to be handed the baton and just run with it. I was like, let me at it. <laughs> <laughs> we, you we know, loved, we loved you in that episode. I mean, you, that was a great our, episode. our podcast of that episode is like, Oh my God, she's wrestling the cow out of the barn. She's such a <laughs> badass. Like we just loved it so much. And then when you're yelling at Mary, like I'm loving that. I mean, it was so oh fantastic. It was, it was just such a, it really was a great episode that just showed Ma's strength, I think. And I was so, of course, we don't didn't want any sickness to happen to Michael Landon, but we were just so glad to see you in that role. That was that was amazing. Well, so isn't that interesting that it had to be written for a man? Yep. Yet yep. all those actions those of things. strength yep. that yep. you love in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, isn't yeah. that interesting? That yeah. says a lot. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I love so that, that was... you. I love that you talk about you fought for two ma centric episodes each season, correct? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And and I was really glad for that because we love those episodes where Ma's featured, like a matter of faith. Oh man, that's that one, one of that stuck know, with. You... I remember that my whole life. That episode. It was so you scary talk to anyone so who watched that as a kid, and there's going to be two things: Little House, the blind school fire, and Carolyn almost cutting off her leg. Those 
those are the two episodes everybody remembers what was what was a matter of faith what was that like to shoot that episode i mean it must have been so intense it was very very intense i was limping around 24 <laughs> 7 i was i was very um uh tightly concentrated on the development of the illness um I was very excited about doing it, you know, yeah. everything, everything from, you know, happy baking pies, fun to ready to cut your leg off. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a great range, right? That was baking a lot of pies. That was a lot of pie baking in that one. We, we blamed, not, we blamed Reverend Alden for almost killing you, making you bake all those pies. <laughs> Yeah, and I think it was it was odd, you know, because then they would cut to Mike and the girls having a lot of fun, you know, jumping in the lake and everything. Wasn't that strange? I mean, yes, that juxtaposition. Yeah, like I, Ma doesn't get a day off. She's like she gets one day to herself, and like this happens, and she has to bake fourteen <laughs> pies and almost cut off her leg. Like it just. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, so just to to kind of wrap it up here, because I know we've had you a long time, and I don't want to keep you too long. Let me ask you: Do you ever think there could be another show that that meets the moment like Little House did? Well, sure. Why not? There's like lots was- of creative people working, and it's oh gosh, there's so much great television now. I mean, it's really so great. Oh, there is so much. And now that the business has changed a lot, Mm -hmm. uh, in those days, you remember, we had only three networks. Mm -hmm. Um, You did 24 or 22 episodes a season, and then you had a break, and then you went right back for the next season. And now they do a series. They do eight shows. (laughs) Then the actors go off and do a play. And then they have a vacation and they have a hobby. And, oh, it's wonderful because people can really keep their creativity going, you know? Yeah. If you're not just grinding it out. Yeah. Nine months out of the year. 24 episode seasons and yeah. 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 I I imagine, you know, one of the things that you write about in your book that you're really proud of and is so admirable is your work on Battered. So I imagine, you know, did you do that during a hiatus with the show or did you do that while you were working on the show? We couldn't shoot it while I was working, but uh, uh, all the writing and preparation and everything, um, I would just race from the studio to my friend's house and we would just work, you know, just like mad women. And... um, then I think it was on a short hiatus in the fall that we shot it. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Imagine what you could have done with the 10 episode schedule. Like there is now, you could have done a play. You could have had a second movie. Wow. Well, Um, I do feel envious of that schedule. Is there anything that you're watching that you want to recommend to anybody? Any shows that you really, really like? Yeah, sure. Um, 
Hacks. Oh, I, heard oh I loved Hacks. I loved it. Jean Smart. Hacks. So Jean Smart is just brilliant. Her co-worker is brilliant. The writing yep. is just super. Um, so I love that. And um, you don't usually get me on those short comedies because yes. I hate laugh tracks. And um, yeah. this one rises above. I agree. Yeah, That's brilliant. For comedy, I also love The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Oh, yeah. That's great. Oh, I Jenny love that. loves that. Yeah. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah. Jenny, maybe yeah. now you'll watch Hacks that uh, Caroline Ingalls is telling you to watch it. <laughs> I'll watch it. I have nothing against it. Do what Ma it. says. Do what Ma says. I just haven't gotten to it. <laughs> so, Karen, just one last question. Yeah. Why did you decide to tell your story now? Why does the book come now? Well, the book has taken years to come now. Yeah. So uh, it started when I first moved here to my home in the Bay Area. And I had left a lot of friends behind and I needed to make new friends. And I had a lot of time to myself. And my memory just came and, and they were so vivid. So I thought, I've got to write this stuff down for my son, if for no other reason. And then I just got very, very interested in it. And I took a memoir class. And then I took, oh, and then I organized a little summer group. And then we mm -hmm. formed our own writing circle. We've been, now been writing to, together for 11 years. Oh, wow. That's cool. We now have one, two, three, four books coming wow. out of this group. And when we started, none of us considered ourselves writers. Wow, hmm. that's amazing. So we've really been sticking to it, you know? Yeah. And uh, I got very, very interested. I started reading lots of memoirs and I learned from them and the most important thing I learned was none of them are the same. Oh, they are yeah. all informed yep. by whatever life and whatever author is writing because it's their point of view on their life. And so that encouraged me. I thought, well, then I can't do it wrong in a way, you know. And yeah. I learned a lot about writing along the way. I, I love memoir. It's I, I once heard memoir described to me as if if the Mona Lisa was the autobiography, then memoir is her smile, like that part of her that kind of makes her mysterious and different. Yeah. And I really uh -huh. like that description. And I've been telling my students that for years with the inability to attribute that quote to anyone because I can't remember who told it to me. <laughs> but I'm like, oh, yeah. somebody out there, it's not me. Somebody <laughs> out there told me that once. And it just stuck with me. Like it was really, memoir is amazing. And I, you know, I kind of just don't want to write anything else anymore. Like I really like writing it. And, and I, I love reading I like, memoir. I like to encourage all women now to write, to write in their journal, write in their diary, write their memories, whatever. I, I think it's very interesting and I think it becomes the log of our time. 
and yeah. it will be interesting to historians in the future what women were thinking now. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the reasons I did the school shooting survivor book is I really wanted to get those narratives in yeah. writing memorialized so that they're there and hopefully that we can look at them through the lens of, wow, that was a weird time and it's over now. That's what is the name of that book? It's called, if I don't make it, I love you. And it's um, 82 survivors of school shootings and over 50 years. We started with the Austin school tower shooting and ended with really another shooting in Texas, ironically, which happened. Yeah. In 2018. So it was, but, but that was, that was my reason for kind of doing it was my love for, of memory and memoir and getting these stories written down and memorializing them. And, and, you know, it, it, it's really important. And thank you. Thank you. And congratulations on your book. I mean, it, I was really touched to receive a copy. I, I begged your publicist for one. <laughs> she was so nice and so thoughtful. And, um, you know, it was really just a pleasure to have you and, I just want to remind everyone that um, Karen Grassley's book is called Bright Lights, Prairie Dust. It's going to be available November 16th, but you can pre-order it from her website. And that's karengrassley.net. Correct, Karen? Yes. Yeah. So, so make sure you follow her on all the socials. Grab a copy of the book. If you think you know Ma, you don't know Ma. You have to read this book. <laughs> You have to, you have to read the book. It's amazing. So Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Jenny and Amy. Thank you so much for having me today. I appreciate it. It was really a pleasure. And our audience, when we told them we were going to sit down with you, they really wanted us to express to you how much they loved you, how much they, they just really grew up with you as their mother figure. And they wanted to say, thank you, Ma, for all that you have done. So we wanted to pass that on. Oh, thank you all very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this very special interview. Thanks again to Karen Grassley for giving us her time, for giving us her story, and for giving us all those years as Ma Ingalls on Little House on the Prairie. Don't forget to pre-order Karen's book today. You can do that by visiting karengrassley.net. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.